All right. Well, Summit Kids, on your mark, get set, go. They're off, just like that. You never have to say much, and they're up and at them. Um, maybe with equal enthusiasm, Summit Essentials. Are, do we have any adults who are willing to sprint out of here for Summit Essentials? That's okay if you're not. Summit Essentials is happening uh, to my right, to your left, in our learning center. Uh, if you're planning on going to that, now's a great time to go. If you weren't planning, uh, that is an opportunity to hear um, from one of our elders, and he's going to share about Summit Church and a little bit more about who we are. Maybe you went to lunch with the pastors previously. Summit Essentials is a good next step to kind of learn more about who Summit is, what we do as a church, so on and so forth. <clears throat> Todd spoke and uh, shared that we're going to enter into a season of fasting in February, which is great. It's good to have a rhythm of fasting in your life and in your relationship with the Lord. Um, there's another kind of fasting that's much more physical and less spiritual. Um, some of you may be familiar with intermittent fasting. Right? It's kind of one of the latest trends for diet. Um, I've done it a few times. I'm not very good at it. And here's the reason why. It's intermittent fasting if you're not familiar. And okay, I know when I like share things like this, there's always people in the room who know more than me. So if that's you, just simmer down a little, okay? I'm going to do my best. Intermittent fasting, basically about 16 hours after consuming food, something happens in your body that does good things and helps you. I don't know. It's probably good for you. Someone could explain it better, right? But you need to go 16 hours without eating. And then really what they say is one meal a day. Like, have your meal, and then you start the window over again. And it's like, okay. And now we're fasting again for another 16 to 18 hours to really get into that cycle and you start burning off fat. Here's why I'm not very good at it. I have this weird condition, and maybe it's rare. I don't know. You guys can tell me if it is or not. I actually know that uh, Jasper has the same condition, and it's this. I'll consume my dinner. Uh, we typically eat between 5.30, 6 p.m. or so. I'll consume my dinner, and I'll be satisfied and full for a moment. And then we go on, we put the kids to bed, so on and so forth. The evening goes on, we clean up the kitchen. And then at nine o'clock, something happens. Does anyone else have this condition? It's like at nine o'clock, I turn into this ravenous monster. And I like make my way to the, to the kitchen. And I open up a cupboard. And usually for me, the first thing is the jar of peanut butter. A jar of peanut butter and a spoon and a big old scoop of peanut butter. Oh, the best thing, right? But then after that, it's like, oh, well, now my mouth's a little, you know, peanut buttery and my throat, like I can barely breathe because of all the peanut butter I just consumed. So now I need something else. So now I go to the fridge and maybe I get a glass of sparkling water, right? So I get some sparkling water. But then it's like, well, now I need something else. Oh, look, there's some nice fruit. And next thing you know, I'm like having like a seven-course meal in our kitchen, uh, and it usually goes, you know, anywhere from 9 o'clock to sometimes even like 11 o'clock at night. Um, maybe you have this condition. I know for Jasper, uh, I'll share a little insight. Jasper's go-to is cereal. So if you texted Jasper at like 10 o'clock at night and said, hey, are you eating cereal? The answer is probably yes. Um, so we all have our thing, but here's, here's the thing is every time I do this, it's like consume more food. Maybe I go off like, oh, let's see what kind of junk food we have. Oh, there's some ice cream. Eat some ice cream. Oh, there's some leftover french fries. I'll eat those. Oh, now I'm going to go off some sunflower seeds. Just like random food. There's no, like, it's madness, guys. And I always ask myself this question. What must I do to be satisfied? Why is it that nothing is good enough? 
the peanut butter is as good as it gets, right? If you, uh, we were talking this past week, Reese's Fast Break, best candy bar in the world. Um, but I could probably eat like five of those and still want more. It's like no matter what, I'm always looking for something else to satisfy me. And that's just one level, right? That's just like on the hunger level of, well, what else do I need to do? Why? I just need to keep eating. I need to keep eating. This is madness. And then eventually what happens is I have a terrible stomach ache. And it's like, well, I just need to stop throwing some Tums and then go to bed and sleep it off, right? Not a very good healthy habit, especially for someone who's trying to do intermittent fasting because it kind of ruins the whole thing. But the question that I want to think about this morning is, what must I do to be satisfied? Far more than intermittent fasting or physical hunger, but on a greater level. And we're going to look at this passage today, another encounter with Jesus as we've we've been doing this month. So if you have your Bible, you can turn it to John chapter 4. It's also going to be on the screen. Um, You know, I do youth ministry, so I understand that oftentimes Bibles are hard to come by, which is weird because most teenagers have a cell phone and there's like 75 different Bible apps. But anyway, uh, it's on the screen if you want to follow along. So let's take a look. Here we go. Starting at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria, Samaria excuse me. so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Joseph had given to his son or sorry, that, jo- that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. I love like John's parenthetical notes that he likes to add in. Like, hey, just by the way, remember Jesus wasn't, deci- or what, Jesus wasn't actually doing the baptism. That's what else his disciples were doing. It. So that's like a note on like baptism. If you think that's like a necessity, well, Jesus wasn't baptizing, his disciples were. So it tells you a little bit about baptism. That's a whole other lesson for another time. Side note that we won't go into today. But why is this? Jesus says, or it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. That's an interesting thing. Sometimes we think we have to do things. Sometimes we don't really have to, but we just convince ourselves that we do. Uh, but why is that significant? I'm going to throw up on the screen here a map, and you're going to see this is what is happening here. Jesus is in Judea in the south, needing to go to Galilee, or wanting to go to Galilee, and it says he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, that makes sense. That'd be like if you wanted to go north of here, you're going to have to pass through whatever's in between. Simple geography. Um, but Commonly, people who were making this trip would not go up the gut of Samaria. That's noteworthy. Here's why. There was tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. So often they would go up along the coastline to kind of avoid any conflict, or they would go up the Jordan Valley to avoid conflict that way. But it was seen kind of foolish to go through the gut of Samaria. Now, why is that? Who were the Samaritans? Let's take a look at that, because this will help us understand the whole setting for what's happening here in this interaction that Jesus is getting into. Samaritans, here's, here's one of the big conflicts that they had. They attempted to help build the temple, right? If you go to Ezra 4, there's an account of them wanting to come and help build the temple. The Samaritans, who are they? They're a people group of a mixed race. They're really the left-behind people from the exile, Right, who had offspring, and that's what began the Samaritan group of people. Right, so there's tension between them because the Jews, they wanted a holy and pure, loyal people of God. So in Ezra, there's an account of them coming to help, coming to build the temple. The Jews are like, hey, listen, we don't want your help. Go build your own temple. Go, go do it somewhere else. So instead of building the temple in Jerusalem with the Jews, they end up in Samaria And they have a mountain that they would worship on, which we'll come back to in a bit. So Jews avoided Samaritans 
because there's tension there, right? You can see they're, they're despised half-breeds. There would be one way that people think of them. There's another uh, non-biblical, but still, I think, helpful religious text uh, that even uses this. It refers to them as foolish and stupid people. So it's like, oh, okay. That helps me understand how their attention, right? It's like, if you're talking about someone that you don't like, you might say something like that. Like, oh, he's a fool, stupid, ignorant, whatever, right? So you can see, oh, wow, the author of this text clearly does not like the Samaritans very well. And then lastly, this is more... This is not really the tension, but more something to take note of again as we go forth, is the Samaritans, what made them, made them a little bit separate from the Jews, was they believed the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, right? The, the original Jewish Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They believed that to be the inspired canon of Scripture. They didn't take the whole Testament as the Jews did. Noteworthy. Put that in your brain. We'll come back to it in a minute, okay? So, what's happening here? It says this. It says, a woman, oh, sorry, it says, uh, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, interesting, two notes there, I think, is one, Jesus was wearied. What? Jesus, this is God, the God of the universe. How is he wearied? How is he tired, right? Doesn't he have like an endless supply? I don't think Jesus is going down and scooping peanut butter in the kitchen at 10 o'clock at night, right? Well, noteworthy here, Jesus was human, right? Hopefully we know this. Fully God, fully human. We're seeing some of his humanity here in his flesh. Hey, look, even Jesus is tired from this journey. He's tired. He's exhausted. It's the sixth hour, so... If you're thinking that, like, oh, six hours, 6 a.m., no, differently, they would measure from the sunrise in six hours. So maybe the sunrise approximately 6 a.m., you would assume, in the Mediterranean area. So this is probably right around noon, midday. So Jesus is tired. It's hot, you can imagine. He goes to this well to get a drink. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. What? That's weird. What's significant about that? Well, how many of you, think about the hottest days of summer here in Michigan, think about the days that are humid, and it's like the ones where you walk outside and you're already like sticky and sweaty, right? Do you choose to do the most laborious tasks outside during the heat of the day? Only if you're like a weirdo, right? Maybe you do, that's fine, if you want to break a good sweat. But most people are like, I want to get up early, I want to beat the heat, or I want to do things in the evening and go to my yard work when it's a little bit cooler, instead of having the sun beat down on me midday at noon. But this woman didn't do that. This woman came during the hottest part of the day. It seems like an odd time to go get water, a long walk to carry a big jar to haul back. That's significant. Again, mark that in your brain. It says, For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, How is it that you... See, she gets it. She's like, hey, well, hold on. You're a Jew. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? She says, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Dealings, that, that word that's originally used in the text, is the idea of associating it all. It's like, we don't even, we don't like saying each other greeting cards. There's no Christmas cards. We're not friends on Facebook. None of that. None of that. Like, we don't associate with each other one bit. So the woman gets this. She understands Whoa, this is weird. This Jewish man should not be talking to me. He shouldn't be sitting with me, let alone he should be coming to me for a drink of water. Isn't that kind of backwards, right? This is Jesus the Messiah, but he's asking the Samaritan woman for water. Well, can't Jesus provide his own water? So what's going on here? 
There's a Samaritan woman simply doing her daily task. She's seeking her daily need, which is water, right? Life in the desert, water is like the difference between life and death. You had to go daily to get your water, otherwise you wouldn't have anything to drink. You wouldn't have anything to prepare meals with. You needed water. It was a very important thing. But Jesus does something, breaking all customs, going against the grain of what we expect. He enters into conversation and starts to associate with a Samaritan. That's a big thing. That's also a woman. And as we'll see here in a minute, with a kind of questionable reputation. You're wondering why she's there at noon. Well, we'll see here in a minute as Jesus talks to her more. But think of this. Often when we have shame or guilt over a matter, we tend to operate a certain way around people that might make us feel that way, right? It's like, ooh, I'm at the grocery store. There's that person that I don't want to talk to. So I'm just going to head over here. Or I'm going to avoid interaction because of my own shame, my own guilt. I don't want to be exposed. I don't want to talk about that thing. So I'm just going to avoid altogether. If you know the story, you know where it's going. But the woman's avoiding interaction with people. She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to interact with other women. So let's continue in the story. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Right? Jesus is like, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for the water. But clearly you don't know. The woman says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. The woman's thinking very limited, right? She's like, I'm just thirsty. I just need to get my water for the day, guy. Like, you don't have anything out of a jar. How do you get water out of the well? What are you talking about? You're saying you have living water? There's no living water here. The idea of living water would have been a stream, Right? Something that's moving opposed to a well where it'd be more stagnant. Right? So if you had living water, the concept would be fresh, bubbling, moving water instead of water that's sitting in a well and not moving. Right? So, ooh, you don't just have stagnant water, you have living water. Well, I want some of that, Jesus. But how are you going to get that? She's thinking very much on the surface level. Right? We've seen this before. Right? We think about Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Born again? How am I going to be born again? I can't get back into my, my mother's womb. What? How's that going to work, Jesus? This limited understanding, but watch what Jesus says. Well, before we go there, one note to share. Another, the idea of living water, seen throughout the Old Testament in many different places. You can look these up, you can write them down. We're not going to look at all of them this morning, but I want to share with you Jeremiah 2, verse 13. It says this, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, And have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Right? Cisterns, great place for water, but a broken one, what is that going to do? To reject the living water and say, well, no, I got a better way. I can meet my own needs. I can go build my own well. I can build my own cisterns. I can go there for water. But the cistern that's broken is no good for water. You're not going to want to drink from that. And it's certainly not going to hold for very long. So the people have rejected the fresh running supply that God provides, choosing for themselves instead nasty, stagnant water. The woman was settling, saying, well, this is what I do. I come here every day. I come at noon, and I get this water, and this is, this is just the life I live. I've accepted it. 
Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. It's like she's starting like thing like, okay, wait, so maybe he has something that I actually need, but you can see her brain's still not there. She's still not clicking yet. Jesus says, hey, whoever drinks of this water, verse 14, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. It'll be ever satisfying. You won't need to keep going back to the well over and over and over. Right? You won't need to go back to the kitchen to get your jar of peanut butter or whatever snack you need late at night to tie you over to the morning because you'd be satisfied. But the woman's still not getting it. Right? Look at verse 15. Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Said, okay, okay, sir. I, I understand you have this water that's going to that's gonna be really good for me. Give me it. I don't want to keep coming here. I don't want to keep coming back here every day. I have too much shame. I don't want to be seen. I want to hide. I just want to stay at home where I don't have to go get water anymore. Sounds kind of like this. It sounds like she's saying this. Meet my needs so I don't have to be inconvenienced. Okay. You have water? Sure, I'll take it. But look at her reasoning. Reasoning. So that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So that I can avoid people. So I don't have to be embarrassed and carry the guilt and shame that I have. I don't really want to deal with it. Let's just, let's just kick it aside. Put it over there and just give me this water. Give me like a pipeline into my house so I just have this fresh bubbling water. And I don't have to leave my house. I can sit in the dark and just be by myself. And nobody's going to have to judge me or critique me. I'll be all alone. And my needs will be met. That's what she wants. But Jesus has something far greater in mind, right? There's a switch that occurs. And almost out of left field, look at verse 16. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. (laughs) What? It's like, Jesus, what? Just give the girl some water. Come on, man. He's like, no, no, no. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you are now with or the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. So he kind of like a, gives her a little recognition. Like, well, you kind of answered true. Like, you're not wrong in saying that you don't have a husband. But let me also reveal to you that I know. I know what's going on here. I know that you have had five husbands. I know that the guy you're living with now is not your husband. I know that you're here at noon because you have a reputation in the community as someone that would have so many husbands and be with so many different men that you're coming here because you're so ashamed of yourself that you just want to have your needs met on your own terms. You don't want anybody to po- like, poke fun at you. You don't want to be around the woman because they think these things about you. You don't want to be around the men because they think certain things about you. You just want to come here and get your needs met. If I'm the woman, I'm like, like I just want to sink and shrink and crawl into a hole. That didn't mean to rhyme, but that works. Sink and shrink. Um, you can laugh; it's fine, um, but not courtesy laughter. Okay, like real laughter. We maybe relate to this woman, or we have certain moments. Maybe you've been like, like you've had your mail read before, 
Or someone's like, hmm, yeah, I'm not buying it. I think the way, the reason you're acting that way is really because you're upset because blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh, dang it. Like this happens often in my marriage, right? Becky will be like, I think you're just upset about that thing from this morning. And I'm like, no, that's not it. And it's like, okay, maybe that is it. Maybe I'm still holding on to that thing. But the feeling inside is, oh, I've been exposed. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And what is he doing here? Well, the opinion of Jewish rabbis, right? The teachers of the Jewish law, it was thought this. It was thought that you could legally have three marriages, legally. uh, But anything beyond that would have been like a no-no, right? So for various reasons, like, well, three is like the number. But you're at five. You've like blown past it. They also didn't approve common law marriage, Right? So you've, you've had five, you've blown past the three, you're still living with this other guy in this common law situation. Big no-no. It's like, what are you doing? If Jesus were a normal rabbi, this may have gone differently. But Jesus focused way more on something deeper than the physical life. Right? He wanted to go deeper to something more spiritual. Just like Nicodemus, her brain went here, And Jesus is out here, right? Something far greater. She's thinking too simple. She's thinking on the surface level. But Jesus wants to expose and say, hey, look, you want the living water? Here's what it's going to take. We're going to have to talk about that thing. We're going to have to deal with that thing that you don't want to deal with. Because guess what? To have the living water, you have to step into some spiritual repentance. You have to do something about this. So the woman desires a shift. Look at this quote from John MacArthur, MacArthur that pertains to this passage. He says this, he says, in order to make it, oh, I'm sorry, nope, as with any lost sinner, this woman needed to understand two crucial issues before she could receive the living water of eternal life, namely, the reality of her sin and his identity as Savior. Jesus is like, look, you got to understand a couple things. I'll give you this water. I know Jesus is like, he's not like, eh, he's probably not indecisive. He knows what's happening. He knows what he's doing. But he's like, first, I need to show you that your needs are far greater than this jar of water that you're here to get. You have something far greater that you're not even thinking about. You're a Samaritan woman. You're living here. You're living in sin. You're living in shame. You're not even thinking about these things. Your mind's too limited. There's something far greater that you need. In order to make it possible for the woman to receive the living water, she had to deal with the tragic nature of her sinful life. So Jesus confronts her. He says, hey, let's talk about your husbands. Let's talk about that thing that you don't want to talk about. Look at her response. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So it almost seems like the woman's starting to buy in. She's like, okay, I see it. You're a prophet. You're, You're able to tell me what I've done in my life. So if I did want to worship, well, where would I go? That's kind of where her brain's going. Okay. I can, I can maybe believe what you're telling me, but if I want this living water, so where do I go? Do I go to the mountain or do I go to Jerusalem? Which one's right? 
Now the mountain where they were in, in Sakar or some people would call it Shechem, there was a mountain nearby called Mount Gerizim. And that, remember back in the beginning, Ezra 4, when they didn't get to build the temple and it was like, hey, we're going to take our ball over here and play otherwise, they went to the Mount of Gerizim and they built their own place of worship at the mountain. So Samaritans would worship here, Jews would worship in Jerusalem at the temple. So that's what she's asking. She's like, so which one is it? Do I go to the mountain? Do I go to Jerusalem? Look what Jesus says. He says, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. She's like, he's like, listen, you're like worshiping on Mount Gerizim. You don't even get it. You don't even see the full picture. You're limited. You guys only believe in the Pentateuch. You're missing a whole portion of scripture that is important to understand the Messiah. You guys believe in the coming of the Teheb, which is different than the Messiah. The Teheb was someone that would come to teach and more of a prophet. The Messiah, obviously, is coming to save sins. So it's like the Samaritans, you're kind of like, you have a few things, right? But you're missing this whole other piece, right? The Jews understood that more fully. That's right. So he says, you don't even know what you're worshiping. But the hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, hey, don't matter if you're on the mountain. It don't matter if you're in Jerusalem. If you're not worshiping in spirit, if your internal being, if your heart is not set in the right spot, that could be easily translated to West Michigan, right? It doesn't matter if you're at Summit Church or this church or that church. It doesn't matter if you sit in the front row or the back row or you worship with your hands in your pockets, your hands up in the, in the rafters. Are you worshiping in spirit and truth? Spirit being, hey, God is spirit. He's living in among us. He wants our spirit to be worshiping him, but we also need to be worshiping in truth, right? In truth being God's word. God's given us his truth through his word, right? Think about John 1, the very beginning of this gospel. The word became flesh to dwell among us. So there's truth, right? So we can't just worship willy-nilly. Like the, the word of God has given us some structure for how that should happen. The woman's response, he says this. She says, I know that. Now, it's interesting. It says, Messiah is coming, uh, probably, as it was recorded, she probably would have said, I know that Teheb is coming. I know that the guy that we're waiting for is coming to teach us. When he comes, you can see the parenthetical John puts, he who was called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. So she said, well, I know he's going to come. He's going to teach us and help us understand all these bigger pictures. But Jesus says this, I who speak to you am he. I am. I am who the Jews have been waiting for. I am who the Samaritans have been waiting for. I'm the one to set the record straight. I'm not only here to teach and help you understand, but far greater than that, I'm here to save you from your sins. Just then, verse 27, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? You see, for someone like Jesus, a teacher, to be interacting with a woman, big no-no, right? They wouldn't teach those things. In their culture, even, people would think that a rabbi teaching a woman 
was one of the worst things possible. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't, they wouldn't interact with women. They wouldn't interact with laborers. They thought, oh, they don't deserve, they don't need to know theological things. Just go build things, right? Like, this is all too heady for you guys, too intellectual. Just go build. So the disciples see this, and they're probably like, whoa, what's going on here, Jesus? But they don't say anything. Here's an interesting note I learned this week in my studies is some rabbis or some Jews, never rabbis, believe this, that even to teach your own daughter anything theological would be the equivalent of sending her off to be a prostitute. What? Like, that's extreme. It's like, don't even teach your daughter. It'd be better for her to be a prostitute than for you to teach her theological things. So you can see the understanding of the culture of women. Hey, have your place over here. You don't get to know theological things. So his disciples are probably like, what in the world? Like, he can't be doing that. But I also imagine they've been with Jesus now long enough that they're probably like, let's just see what happens here. Let's let this play out. I think we're going to understand more in a minute. What happens next? It says, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So suddenly she leaves her water jar. Now there's varying thoughts. There's nothing conclusive. Of, well, why did she leave her jar? Was that intentional? Did she leave it for Jesus because Jesus didn't have a jar and he was still thirsty and hadn't drank yet? Was it because she was so excited she just forgot? No conclusive like, thought on that. But here's what I know. You probably have experienced that. Right? You're, you're so focused on one thing. You're doing a task, whatever it may be. And then something else happens. And it's like, whoa, pause, don't care about this anymore, now I'm off this way, right? We've probably all experienced that to some degree. This past week, I was down in our basement, I was doing laundry, I was frustrated because I had left the clothes in the water, in the washer overnight, so the clothes were wet and they smelt just a little bit and that weirdness that you get, right? And so I'm down there doing laundry, frustrated, and all of a sudden I hear this sound that sounds like a one-year-old girl falling downstairs, um, which is exactly what it was. It was a one-year-old girl tumbling downstairs, and I hear my wife shriek and yell, Sam! Suddenly, guess what? I didn't care about the laundry anymore. I did later when I came back and smelt it again. But for that moment, I was like, whoa, laundry, be right back, don't care. I sprint, I turn up the basement stairs, I'm trying to go so quickly, I stumble up the stairs, I fall down, I hurt my toe, I get upstairs, and Willow's laying at the bottom of the stairs screaming, thankfully she's okay. But in the moment, it was like, nothing else matters. This is too much of an importance right now. The laundry can wait, the thing I was upset about then can wait. We'll get back to that maybe later, but this thing's more important. Maybe you've had an experience like that where suddenly there's this quick shift. I think that's what happens here with the woman. She's like, oh, this water jar, whatever. I need to go to town. Something just happened here, and I need to go tell people about that. The question we started with this morning was this. What must I do to be satisfied? The woman came looking for a certain kind of satisfaction, right? She came to satisfy her daily need of water. We all probably have the same question. Beyond late night hunger, but more about life in a bigger way. What must I do to be satisfied? Do I need to, do I need to get a promotion at work? Do we need a new house? Maybe if we had a little bit more money in our savings account. Maybe if this was that way or that was this way. Maybe that would satisfy me. The woman had a need. She wanted it to be satisfied. She hid. She kept a low profile. She avoided people. 
just kind of stuck on the hamster wheel of life, trying to get through one more day, trying to have her needs met just to be satisfied for a little bit, and then back again the next day, back to the well, back to the well, back to the well. There's three things this morning that I want us to, to take away. If you want to be satisfied, what must you do? The first one is this. Recognize your spiritual thirst. Far beyond how we may thirst for other things. Have you set aside your water jar? Do you recognize that your spiritual needs are far greater than any other need that you may have? The question to think about this morning is, what is your water jar? What is the thing that you constantly go back to? When you've had a rough day, you turn to it. When you need to feel better about yourself. But for me, and I'm sure you guys can relate to this, those things never seem to satisfy, right? Maybe it's sports. Sometimes I get on my phone on the ESPN app and I read sports articles. And I can sense like this, like, oh, like I just want to be like satisfied. And I read one article and I read another article and I just like keep going. I'm like, you know what? This just isn't doing it. These articles aren't good enough. And then maybe I get on Facebook and I start watching reels on Facebook. And some of them are kind of funny and some of them are maybe helpful DIY hacks for the house or whatever. But I just keep going and then I'm like, you know what? This isn't good enough. It's not really satisfying me. Maybe for you it's something different. Maybe for you it's money. Maybe you're a workaholic where you're like, why well, does you have a little bit more money and that next vacation, I just got to have my eyes on that next vacation and get to the next thing. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's success. I think we all have some form of a water jar that we turn to and we go back to trying to just get our needs met. But guess what? The water jar, you take it home, you drink it, and it's empty again. You're back in the same place. John Calvin says this. He says, Now that knowledge begins with the conviction of our poverty. For before anyone desires a remedy, he must previously... He must be previously affected with the view of his distresses. Thus the Lord invites not those who have drunk enough, but the thirsty. Not those who are satiated, but the hungry to eat and drink. And why would Christ be sent with the fullness of spirit if we were not empty? Have you recognized your spiritual thirst? Have you come to terms with the band? Hey, you know what? There's nothing on this earth that's going to satisfy the real thirst I have. Here's the next one. The woman figured this out. Step into spiritual repentance. Jesus revealed to her, hey, your need is far greater than this jar of water. I've shown you that you need something even more. I've shown you that you need a spiritual satisfaction that this water is not going to do. He showed her how desperately she needed something more. Have you accepted your spiritual thirst and stepped into true repentance? Now here's something I think is important. I've found, personally, you may disagree, i found that our society tends to get confused about confession and repentance, right? Different things. Confession is like, I was wrong and I'm sorry. But that's not repentance, right? Repentance is something far greater. Repentance is like, hey, I'm going this way, and guess what? I'm going to do a 180, and I'm going to start going this way now, because that thing wasn't doing it for me. That's repentance. It's not like, well, I'm sorry, I'm just going to go do it again, and here I am, and now here I come back. Oh, I'm still sorry. Confession, okay, but to repent. The woman doesn't really 
confess willingly, right? She's like, why? I don't have a husband. She's like holding back a little bit. But then Jesus kind of walks her into it. But the act of leaving her jar, that's her doing a 180. She's like, oh, I was going this way. I was going to the well. But guess what? I need to go back. I need to go to the town, the town that I'm rejected in, the town that I'm made fun of in, the town where I have no good reputation, where I'm a woman, where I shouldn't be speaking to anyone. I shouldn't be speaking to men. I shouldn't be doing anything. I'm going to go to the town and tell them what I just encountered. Which leads us to our third one. Embrace your spiritual identity. Have you abandoned all customs and rituals and norms, political correctness, and embrace Jesus as the only one to satisfy your thirst? The woman does, right? She's like, guess what? I might have five husbands. I might be living with a man, but right now I don't care anymore. I don't care. The guilt and the shame is gone because I just experienced something far greater. So I'm going to go into town. I'm going to talk to these men about something theological. I'm going to say, hey, listen, I know I'm not supposed to say this, but I'm going to say it because it matters more than anything else in this moment. I've been, I've had my thirst met. I've been fed something, and you guys need to hear this. She goes into town. She's a woman. She's a disgrace. She's lowly. It sounds terrifying, right? But she doesn't care. She's like, in this moment, my needs have been met. My thirst is satisfied. I don't need my water jar anymore. And I'm going to town. Guys, look, I just met this man at the well. He told me everything I ever did. It might be the Messiah. We got to go. We got to go right now. Have you experienced that? Have you embraced your identity in Christ in that way? Where you're like, suddenly, guess what? My insecurities are gone. I don't need that thing anymore. I can stop going back to that thing that I used to go to years and years and years, over and over, and I can go somewhere else and have my needs met, my spiritual thirst can be satiated finally. I don't have to keep going back to the well with my water jar, embarrassed and lonely because, lowly because of my sin and the nature of it all. Look what happens as a result. There's a little interaction there. I'm not trying to like dismiss it, right? All of scripture is important. The disciples come back. They're like, hey, we have food. Jesus is like, you guys don't have any food. You don't know what you're talking about. It's kind of the same lesson, right? Where he's like, I have food you guys don't even know about. And they're like, well, I don't get it, Jesus. Because again, they're like this, right? And Jesus is like, you guys, come on, stay with me, right? That's a brief paraphrase. But then look at verse 39. Look at what the result is. The woman sees her spiritual thirst She steps into repentance. She embraces her identity. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. So look at verse 39. They believed because of the woman's testimony. But then they believed because of the word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe that we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. This all happens because the woman recognizes those three things. She steps into the identity that Jesus has given her and says, hey, I got to go forth. I got to go do something about this. I got, so, so what about my shame? I don't have that anymore because guess what? Jesus has given me something far better that will always satisfy me. Folks, some of us have probably done some of these three things before. Maybe they're a regular occurrence. But I wonder this. I can't help but wonder, what happened to the woman? Did she go back to the well? Did she go back to other men? Did she stay with the guy? Did they get married? We don't really know. 
But I know that some of us maybe have experienced this at one point in our life. And as time goes on, we kind of start doing this. And suddenly it's like, well, that well I was at was pretty good. That nasty drinking water. It makes me think of my dog growing up. We had a couple Springer Spaniels. One of them was named Maylee. Maylee was a great dog. You give her, she, she was very communicative in her dog ways. So she would let you know when she was thirsty. And you go, and, and she was also like a total diva. Like, come on, dog. She would only drink water fresh out of the fridge, like the nice chilled, filtered stuff. Or so you thought. She would sit there and paw at the fridge, wanting the water, and then you'd fill her bowl, and you'd set it down, and she would do the weirdest thing. She would walk away. And she'd, her little claws tapping on the hardwood floor, and you go, I know where she's going. She's going down the hall, and she's going into the bathroom. And she would stick her head in and drink the toilet water. And we laugh, and it's like, what? Why would you sit here and ask for this great water in your bowl, but then go drink the toilet water? But in a lot of ways, we're all like Maley. Some of you have accessed and tasted the spiritual living water that Jesus offers. But every now and then, it's like, eh, that toilet bowl water. (laughs) That's what I want right now. Stop! Stop going to the toilet! Get back to Jesus! The only living water that can satisfy. If you've experienced it, you know it, and you know in your heart that that thing that you keep going to has to stop. If you've never experienced it before, look at this woman, the most lowly. We have Nicodemus, who is thought of well, right? It's like, oh, Nicodemus, he's got it all together on one end. But then down here, we have this woman, she's like, she doesn't know anything. doesn't matter who you are. Whether you think you have it all together, you probably don't. Whether you think you don't have it all together, you're probably right. But all of us, need to come to the living water. That's my hope for you this morning. What must you do to be satisfied is to come to the well that will never leave you thirsty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this account of this encounter with Jesus. I often wonder about my own life my own trivial things that I often turn to and run back to, thinking that they'll make me feel better, whether it's something silly like a a scoop of peanut butter late at night or something more serious, the comfort of having finances, the comfort of having a, a home and a place to lay my head. Father, I don't know why I do that. Help us. Remind us of how good your water is. Remind us that your water is the only living water that can satisfy us, Lord. Take away the water jars from us. Crush them. Destroy them. Help us get away from broken cisterns and help us come to your feet and be satisfied in you. The only one that can truly meet our needs, the only one that can truly satisfy us is you. We need you, Lord, more than ever. Help us to recognize our spiritual thirst for you. Help us to step into spiritual repentance. And Lord, help us to embrace the identity that you give us those things happen. In your son's name we pray. Amen.